Welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Jenna Kelly as she explores the lasting psychological and emotional bonds between individuals. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network and join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast Facebook group. Well, hey there, Attachment Theory in Action podcast listeners and now viewers. I'm your host, Jenna Kelly, and I'm so excited that we're able to offer these interviews now in a video format. So it would mean so much to us if you would please subscribe to our new YouTube channel and let us know what you think. And also please consider joining our Facebook group, which is also new, where we hope to keep some of these conversations going. We can interact more with each other, ask questions of each other, um, and just hang out where all the cool kids are. So I am really excited for you guys to check out this interview today where I sit down with Susan Andrian and Angela Harris. They are both just boss women, so passionate and dedicated to the work that they're doing in the trauma and attachment field and are um, really carrying on a lot of the work of Dr. Bruce Perry's neurosequential model. If you don't know who Bruce Perry is, you might be living under a rock. So buckle up because you'll probably have your mind blown. And if you are already familiar with his work, this is a way to keep learning where we're going to talk about some of the key principles of his work and especially how it applies to the school system. As many of you are probably already aware where our schools are facing a mental health crisis. There's a lot going on with our children right now, a lot of trauma and attachment issues, and there's a lot going on with the adults as well. And so we talk about ways to support these systems and apply his work to schools. And we you also get to hear about some of the cool work that each of these ladies are doing. And we really end on a lot of hope, uh, thinking together about how to make innovative change. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about each of these amazing women. Um, Susan is a licensed, mar- licensed marriage and family therapist. She's the CEO and founder of Hope Reimagined. She's a phase two certified trainer for the neurosequential model. She's also a certified forest therapist guide, which is really exciting because I'm going to have her back to talk more about our connection with nature uh, and how that supports the work that we do in trauma and attachment. And then I also am joined with her colleague, Angela, who is a licensed clinical social worker. She practices in Montana. Susan practices in Oakland, California. And Angela has over 15 years of experience, lots of advanced training in mental health and trauma, and is also a phase two trainer in neurosequential model of therapeutics. And so I can't wait to introduce these two ladies to both of you. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did in sitting down and talking with them. The Knowledge Center at Chaddock is a tremendous resource for therapists, educators, business and organizational leaders, and anyone curious about trauma-informed care. At tkcchaddock.org, you'll find information about registering for our professional development courses like the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, Adult Attachment Interview Workshops, or the Nonprofit Leadership Academy. You'll also find a library of Chaddock publications in the TKC store, including the entire Michael Trout book and video collection. Visit tkcchaddock.org for videos, articles, workshops, and podcasts in the arena of attachment and trauma-informed care. Well, hello, Susan and Angela. Welcome, welcome. Thank you both so much for joining me today on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. 
Hello, thank you for having us. I'm really excited to be here and to be in conversation. Hi, I'm excited too. Yes, I'm also so excited. I think when I emailed you both to invite you on as guests, I phrased it as, hey, do you guys want to be my guinea pigs? (laughs) Um, Because I'm new to this hosting thing. And, you know, we'll just figure this thing out together. And you both still graciously agreed. So thank you for being such good sports. And one of the reasons I knew I wanted to have both of you on in one of my earlier interviews is because we had the chance to sit down and and nerd out together um, in some preparatory conversations for some workshops that you guys provided to Chaddock at the Knowledge Center and you know, we were talking about trauma and especially the ways that, um, you know, Dr. Bruce Perry's neurosequential model has really heavily influenced your work. And we were really speaking the same language and just having this beautiful, rich conversation. And so I knew that this was a conversation that I wanted listeners and viewers to also be able to experience. So, Um, But before we get into that, I also want to bring some more of each of you into our conversation. And so much of who we are is also influenced by our attachment memories and figures. So I would love for each of you to please share an attachment memory that feels really important right now um, in, in who you are and why you do this work. So Susan, can I start with you? Sure. Um, This is such an important question and, you know, kind of puts you in a rabbit hole of like, oh, I could go here or I go there because the the moments, right, those really powerful moments that we experience that create this web that actually allows us to come to the moment that we are in now. And I, I, and I would say that my attachment story or journey continues with as I become a parent of adults, as I my relationships evolve, but I, I, and it was hard to really think of one, but where I really felt the most resonance for what we're talking about today was really, I was born in Albion, in Michigan. And so when I came into the world, my father, um, worked for Corning, which was, a you know, he was an engineer and he was transferred a lot. So we would, there's, we were four biological children in my family, and we were all born in different states. And I was born in Albion, Michigan, which was a very segregated city. And so when my parents moved there, um, they were kind of shocked about the level of segregation and started to get involved in civil rights and in um integrating creating a uh alternative to the local country club which was segregated to the melting pot which still exists today but i had a nanny uh who was a black woman and we also had uh two men living with us frank and julius who during those first year of life they were um a big part of my life and my parents involvement in uh social justice and civil rights uh, and, you know, even at that time, trying to work against anti-Black racism, I really believe that those attachments and those relationships early on influenced um, who I feel connected to and, and, the, and the communities that I feel connected to. And so I've lived in Oakland for uh, 27 years now, I think. And my work in Oakland has been primarily with uh, all, all with BIPOC communities, but primarily black 
community. And I feel like those early relational templates, that deep commitment by the people that I lived with and that were in my home really created this template for important relationships across difference and across culture as a white woman. So Mm -hmm. that's the story I decided to tell today. Yes. I love that story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Angela, what's coming up for you? Well, as Susan had mentioned, I feel like there's a lot of different memories that I have, but the one that I feel like I've really kind of held on to and explored the most um, as far as how it really shaped my relational template in life and kind of the work that I've had to figure out and continue to explore is um, when I was two years old, my parents were divorced and my dad was still living in in Montana and my mom was in California. And so in order to kind of share that parenting, my mom had my sister and I come up to Montana for the summer. And um, I vividly remember the exchange that they would do. Um, It was in Elko, Nevada. And it was a hotel room. And I remember waiting for my mom and wondering where she was and crying on the phone and being just so upset. And I think about, even though both parents had the best intention, um, that the child's view, you know, my view at that time was feeling abandoned and that my primary caregiver, the external stress regulator wasn't present. And that was my mom. And so it really kind of changed the way I feel like my mom still to this day says, you never came back the same. And I think that, um, that that really stuck with me of like the fear of abandonment in relationships and not being able to really trust males to be, you know, able to regulate my stress. And, and, and that was, you know, not my, to my dad's fault, but, you know, he was present in there, but just not, that wasn't his, Mm. I don't think he was shown that either. So, you know, we could go way deep into that history, but it just, it really helped inform the way that I kind of see relationships and the work that I needed to do and continue to do to be aware of those internal messages um, and how they shape the way that uh, relationships feel. And and so we'll talk a little bit more about that today, but that's, that's, a, that's a memory I think about often. Yes. I love how both of your memories really speak to the way our experiences change our our brains and our internal working models and who we relate to and feel most comfortable long before we have the words and the cognition to put to that, um, which is very much, I think, going to be a thread as we continue this conversation. So speaking of, of brain science, um, both of you are phase two trainers for Dr. Bruce Perry's neurosequential model. And I think that has really been a game changer. I've also had some training in that and how we understand trauma and the way it impacts our brains and nervous systems. It's, it's really a game changer. So let's mm-hmm. give our listeners and viewers a little more orientation to what that's all about. Some may have some familiarity already or been trained in it already, and some might not know what we're talking about yet. Yeah, Angela, do you want to take this one or you want? Sure. Well, Susan and I met, I believe it was 2019, um, coming from 
different places of the United States. Um, and I'm not really sure, I can't remember how Susan figured or learned about the neurosequential model. Was it through his books? Yeah, I, I had been using his, um, the uh, core healthy, the core strengths, healthy strengths development um, in my training with, I was uh, teaching at a graduate school level. So I've been using his work and the boy raised as a dog was in my core curriculum. And then I just was seeking uh, and, you know, I slowly did more and more training, but yeah. And, and I hadn't had a ton of exposure to his work. I actually was working in a school system at that time and went to a conference and there was a speaker here in Montana who had been working and um, trained in NMT. And so I went to this conference and I was like, wow, these are all the things that I, you know, now I know the neuroscience behind what I'm preaching over here, or trying to teach. Mm -hmm. And so um, I felt like the science was missing from a lot of the things that I was learning. And um, even in graduate school and things like that, I think, gosh, there's so many of Bruce Perry's concepts that he's really helped to, to share. And so like the stress response system wasn't something that I was very familiar with um, understanding um, what we'll talk about, like the intimacy barrier. I felt like I, I knew what I should do, but didn't really know the, the why I should do. And so it was really difficult pre-certification um, of NMT to help teach these concepts because I couldn't figure out, I would just say, well, this is just what we do, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And so um, NMT has changed my my complete understanding of even just like the therapeutic world. And um, there's some concepts that he teaches about dosing and spacing and the way that the brain actually changes. And I feel like it's, it's totally different than what we're how many of us are practicing. Um, and so Susan and I met in Colorado at a, at a workshop for phase one, and we've continued our relationship. And I, I won't speak for Susan, but I chose to move through um, phase one to, to have this education and then continue to do phase two, because I really felt like I needed to enhance my ability to educate and train others on these concepts, because I feel like if we're educated and grounded in this framework, um, our work and our recommendations really are more aligned with being biologically and neurologically respectful of the way that the brain works. Yeah, thank you, Angela. Anything you wanna to add to that, Susan? Yeah, I mean, I, I thank you. That was a really good grounding for us and our relationship. Um, and I would say for me, I had been doing school-based mental health for a long time and also teaching at the graduate school level. And I think as Angela said, that being able to take these super complex ideas around, because the physiology and the neurobiology and what's happening in the body is really complex. And I think one of the things that was really uh, profound for me was that Dr. Perry was able to take these super complex uh, ways and systems that our body is working and, and, and communicate them in really digestible ways so that I was able to understand. And, and I know there's layers and layers that I don't know yet, but I feel like now I have enough grounding and how the physiology works so that I can be meeting the communities that I'm working with, either individuals or school communities as a whole with this basic understanding of the neurophysiology and, and how 
what are the environments that folks need in order to move from where they are to a more regulated, healthy, happy, joyful place of being. So, um, yeah, I think that's the only thing I'd add. And again, I first was introduced to Dr. Perry through the six core strengths for healthy development, which I found really aligned really well with attachment theory, which I had studied prior to it. And and to me, it was just kind of breaking that down even further into these neurophysiology ways of understanding attachment. Can you talk more about those six strengths, Susan? Uh, yeah, I mean, I have to go back and, and it's a, ta- it starts with attachment, uh, and then regulation. Um, they, a lot, I have to go back and look exactly. I don't have them on the top of my head because I've sort of moved, he's moved away from them in many ways, but I think that they're still foundational to the way that we're thinking. So it might take me a second to recall them exactly. No, I know we start with attachment and then it's regulation and then, um, there, and they go in order. And so the idea is that in order to be able to be regulated, first you have to be attached. And then once you're regulated, then you can start to be in relationship and, mm-hmm. and build relationships across. And then once you feel you've had some relationships and then it's affiliation is mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. and it ends with respect. And so it's the, the idea that as you progress and start to feel healthy in your relationships, confident in yourself, that you can sort of have this independence and then you start to value diversity. So the final phase of the core strengths of healthy development is this idea where I have enough internalized relational strength um, and my template is solid. I feel confident in who I am and I can be in relationship and actually value being in relationship with people that are different than me. Um, Mm -hmm. That was a, a beautiful explanation, even if you can't. remember it verbatim. It sounds like it's really that hierarchy of how we're organized in similar ways of how the hierarchy of how our brains and nervous systems are organized. And, And the other thing I love about Dr. Bruce Perry's work, which you've already touched on is like, there's often been this disconnect connect and this gap between what scientists tell us about, about our brains and trauma Mm -hmm. and our stress response system. And that his model is able to then, like you said, make that more understandable and practical and apply it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, even though it's neuroscience, it doesn't have to be rocket science at the same Mm -hmm. time. So, um, so thank you. And I'm just going to put this out here now, early in the interview that <laughs> I'm going to put it out in the universe and manifest this, that I also am try, you know, so hopeful to get Dr. Bruce Perry himself on my podcast. I know he's very busy and doing really important work. And so he said to check back next year. And so I will be checking back and I will be coming for you. Um, but having both of you, I also want to say you're not just a consolation prize because again, what's so exciting with his stuff is it's got to be scalable. It can't just be one person who Mm -hmm. is doing this work. And that's why getting it out to clinicians and educators and parents and foster parents. And, you know, I know that it's, it's now expanded into all of these different contexts, early childhood supervision. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Mm -hmm. and, and I know that you both are, are really passionate about educational settings too, and have done a lot of work with educational settings. So do you want to talk a little more about how NMT has expanded into education and how that frames your work? Yeah. Um, 
So I, I've worked in Oakland public schools for the last 20 years. I, I actually left a year ago um, from, from the system to start my own organization and to be working outside of the system. But w- what we're seeing in schools, right, and the way that learning theory happens, right, that, that if we apply relational safety and creating uh, environments that are therapeutic when we understand relational sensitivity and the intimacy barrier and teachers, so part of what I have been doing in in that role was trying to educate teachers um, through professional development. I had uh, a lot of teachers that I was able to engage with over these concepts and how they're impacting their practices in the classroom. And so this, I, the, the hierarchy, the sequence of engagement, regulate, relate, le- reason is probably one of the easiest and most profound ways in which educators, when they get this concept of creating environments in the classroom that respect the hierarchy and the sequence of engagement of like, I need, first I need to have my, young person regulated before I can engage them in learning. And then they need to feel safe relationally and be in relationship. And then we can start to get to the cognitive learning that we want them to do, which is changing the brain, learning math, learning English language arts, all of the things we want young people to get out of being in education lives in the prefrontal cortex and the cortex part of the brain. And in order to get there, we have to go through the brainstem and the diencephalon and the other parts of the brain to to be able to access. And so when teachers understand the relationship between feeling safe, feeling regulated and learning, they start to value that more than just control. And when we start to provide provide this respectful of physiological states and stress response, state-dependent functioning, then teachers can provide environments that will then allow young people to get to that part of their brain that will allow them to learn things like trigonometry. Um, Also recognizing that my entire career, but particularly post-pandemic, the amount of stress that teachers are under and the need for teachers in order to have their physiological, emotional, social needs met so that they can be co-regulators for the young people in their classroom. If they're uh, all functioning as state dependent, so if the teacher has not had their basic needs met and they're not regulated and feel safe in relationship, they're not able to provide the co-regulation that the young people in their classroom need. And so when we talk about classroom environment, um, they're really related. I don't know. Do you want to add to that, Angela? No, that's great. I mean, I think that, you know, when I'm talking to educators, I think also, especially like early childhood, um, that we, we assume that by the time these kids are entering into um, education systems is that these areas are well organized and ready Mm -hmm. to receive the cortex heavy content, right. And the academics. And I think what we're, what we're seeing, at least in the schools that I have um, been a part of is that many of the social skills and a lot of the, um, the younger Mm -hmm. developed kind of uh, brain areas are not as well organized. And so kids do need that co-regulation and, and that, many times kind of our practices stress on this like independence regulation, they should know how to ask. Like, so we, we kind of assume that many of our kids are ready for that. And I think that there's a big, um, lack of continuity between what we're, what the job is to teach and where these kids are coming in at. Um, and I also was thinking, 
how important when you were talking, Susan, about how teachers, they have a job to do, you know, they have, they have education to content to give. And I, I think that it's really important to be able to see the importance of the mental health staff that's in the building, being able to help with that regulation piece so mm-hmm. that students can perform um, within their classrooms. And I think that, um, Oftentimes that sometimes in our systems that can feel like a like a, a weighted difference between um, time spent. But if, if a child is dysregulated, you know, something I always think of is it's like trying to put cotton through a straw. The education that you're trying to deliver isn't necessarily going to be able to sustain or maintain because of the dysregulation. And so the sequence of engagement is is crucial in understanding that we need to be regulated first. And I also think something I learned from NMT that I didn't think about was our social view and our perspective and Mm -hmm. the way that we receive relationship is, is really impacted by dysregulation. So if we're dysregulated, we're not going to see those relationships as positive or in our social perception may be skewed. Um, and so, you know, I think about all of the the times we have to help children in, in social skills and we're kind of like, well, you'll figure it out or you ignore it. We just don't have a lot of capacity to to be helpful. And I think that we need to be helpful because that's that's where these, you know, kiddos are learning social, social rules and expectations. And um, so it, it does kind of require a shift to to give all components equal equal opportunity to help the kids that are entering in the education system. Yes. One of the powerful statements that I remember you making in your presentation that I was lucky enough to receive was a dysregulated adult can never regulate can never regulate a dysregulated child. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. And yet when we're dysregulated, we sometimes don't recognize the adults and this applies in the education setting, parenting context, all the contexts. Uh, and, and sometimes we, we don't even recognize our own level of, of dysregulation and what's going on with us. Um, whether we're on autopilot or we're just trying to get through our agendas or get to the next thing. Um, so, what can, and this is again, another reason I love the the learning around the neuro, neurosciences, because I think just that awareness of how our brains and, and nervous systems work can be a really powerful tool. But what else have you guys tried to help the adults with um, so that they can focus on their own regulation first? I mean, this is an important and complex question. I think part of it is dependent on the systems of which the educators are in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do not use the language self-care to educators anymore because I think that they're uh, frustrated with the mantra of self-care while the system is still demanding so much of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm currently running a, so I'm also do forest therapy and, and, all of these things connect to the neurosequential model, but I have a group right now of educators. There's about 28 that signed up and 
around 15 to 20 coming to each session where they're learning to regulate their nervous system through nature connection activities. So having a plan that includes what do you do for prevention? What do you do in the moment? So what's your self-care? Your self-care plan needs to include like prevention, things that keep us well, things that keep us maintaining. And then also recognizing that as things get stressful, what is your go-to in the moment strategy for managing stress and the moment? And then also like a reflective process to be able to make sense of where are the triggers? When is it most difficult? When am I struggling the most? Um, and this, the number one thing I would say is schools need to create spaces that feel safe for the adults in that system to be vulnerable and reflect on their own challenges and that they have the opportunity to um, to open up the space to be able to even acknowledge where the level of stress is living in their body. Mm -hmm. And I think I would add to that, that, um, I, I mean, I go straight to the system issues and the fact of like the, what we're asking educators to be able to do seems to be heavily outweighed by the lack of support in the sense of, you know, when you think of the concepts of dosing and spacing and, and emotional contagion and all of these things that NMT talks about, our, our systems are set up to have that teacher on with mm -hmm. an overwhelming amount of children to attend to all day with some having very minimal break as far as being able to even regulate their store to be able to tap out and say, I just need a minute. I mean, I think that we really need to be thinking about exactly what Susan said, but then how do we take these systems and start to shift our expectations so that, so that teachers, I mean, they're human too, and they need, they need to be able to be supported and everybody has different things that are helpful. Right. And I just feel like, we can be really rigid in the way that we expect school systems to flow. Um, and I think we need to get creative and inventive on, on how to, to create um, uh, more webs of support for the adults that are trying to give this experience to children in their buildings. Um, so when I say webs of support, I think that everybody's web looks different and we need to kind of figure out what is it that would be helpful for that teacher um, to be able to manage their stress response system and how could we be more respectful of that so that they can be more present, attuned and safe for the children that they're serving. Yeah, yeah, we're 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 at a moment of crisis in public education right now. I mean, I think there's a mental health. We we're all hearing about the mental health crisis of children uh, in the building, but there's also the number of teacher vacancies. And I was just reading a study that showed for for the first time in history, the last couple of years, there's been more vacancies in January than there was in August, and and the vacancies are much higher, which is an indication that. Historically, teachers might have left at the end of the school year, but we're seeing greater numbers of teachers leaving in the middle of the school year, which is just really an indication that that what we're asking them to do is is not sustainable for for health and well-being. Yes, and I love how you speak to the systems around them because I think so often those teachers and caregivers can somehow feel like there's something wrong with me that mm -hmm. I can't you know, they pathologize it to themselves and their own worth. And, and so really normalizing it, that there's something wrong with the, these systems that, um, 
expect too much. And, mm-hmm. and so now you've got all these, you know, dysregulated, regulated children with dysregulated adults who are maybe under supported. And it's, it's a perfect storm for teachers mm-hmm. feeling burned out and needing to leave. And so if there's things we can learn and do to prevent that and slow things down, then we've got, we've got to be the carriers of those messages and the, you know, helping get the, the support into these systems. Um, do either one of you have an example that you can kind of bring this to life where maybe you've worked with a school and, and helped them, you know, better um, incorporate some, some, you know, I know you said not using the word self-care, but the things that they're doing to truly take care of the the adults first, which are not selfish. These right. are things that have to be done first. Um, do you have a story or an example for us? Uh, I have, I mean, I have a, a number of stories. There's one school in particular, Fred T. Korematsu in East Oakland. I'm going to shout it out because it's really an amazing elementary school that I get to continue to work with, even though I left the district. Um, The teachers have all uh, been exposed on some level to the neurosequential model. And also the mental health team is going through the case-based series of the neurosequential model for therapeutics and really talking about creating environments that are sustainable and supportive for the adults as as well as the children. Um, and that staff has been, uh, they're, they're, they've been retained. So, I mean, one of the few schools where the almost entire staff has been there for seven years, even though it's a deep East Oakland school serving some of our most trauma impacted communities. And, um, they, they, the principal just prioritizes the wellness of her staff and they have conversations about it and teachers feel safe when to ask for help. In addition, they've worked really hard to bring in and secure additional mental health and um, resources to the school through grant writing, through the community schools manager, through just like a dedication to bringing trauma-informed resources. And so I get to work with that school, train adults, talk with them about their well-being, and also um, the staff have a regular practice of sustainable. It is self-care, but I just think the language, when we asked teachers to do self-care rather than providing sustainable well-being practices within the school, um, so that's one school. And I, I think there's a range in the district that I work in. Mm. What a hopeful story that change is possible. So we've talked about the sequence of engagement as one of the key principles of NMT. Is there more you can help us bring to life, Angela? Maybe share. I know that that there's a lot of you know, R's and P's and and, and NMT maybe share more about some of the other core principles of NMT for our listeners. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, when I think of the education system more just in relationships in general, um, I think of Bruce Perry's P's, which there are a lot of them, um, but they, they help kind of ground that in order to create an optimal relational setting or context um, when building capacity and relationship, I think that many of our systems are, are definitely, you know, relationships are the buffer to adversity. We, we need relationships and they're extremely important. However, 
how we receive and what our narrative of relationships and our expectations of those can be extremely important to understand in order to help build and shift that capacity. So um, things that um, are in the P's are being present. And I think that that's an extremely important um, word that is definitely impacting us societal-wise, whether it be in our home or in schools that... Mm. um, you know, technology has created a, a barrier to presence in relationship. Um, there's lots of positive things about technology, but um, many, many parents and caregivers are kind of tuned out in, in being present um, with their children. And, and you can even sometimes see that in the classroom where the teachers mm-hmm. might be on their phone or, and, and kids know, you know, they, they know. And um, I think about multitasking and how you're like, listening and when you're listening and actively listening it's a very different experience than when someone's like "Uh uh uh-huh and they're doing other things you know so just that concept in itself another um p is being parallel and i that Mm -hmm. i again had no idea why that was important but when we talk about relational sensitivity um and wanting to help someone feel safe being in parallel is a non-threatening way to engage in relationships so rather than the expectation of face-to-face or look me in the eye um i think that we really Mm -hmm. need to kind of shift that you know eye contact is earned it's not it shouldn't be expected. Um, Eye contact can be um, extremely threatening depending Mm -hmm. upon what somebody's, um, you know, experiences have been. And so how can we be in parallel to create safety in relationships um, and build on safety versus, um, you know, even in therapy, we are face to face, Mm -hmm. right? So it's amazing when you think about how much work gets done in a car, you know, when you're driving and someone just starts chatting because there's this parallel engagement. Um, and so, and then, um, being persistent, I think that oftentimes, um, we're really, this is something I notice in the therapeutic world is that we, we tend to say, okay, they're not, they're not moving forward. I'm going to refer them out. And um, I think about persistence and some of my clients I've been with for two years and they started with very, very lack of ability to feel trust in that relationship and being persistent and continuing to show up and providing a positive experience in relationship eventually shifted, right? Two years later, whereas many therapists and and sometimes in education, we move them forward because we think, oh, well, it's not happening fast enough for me. So is that my timeline that they need to, or is it really about their timeline and how that it, it, so in with some of these clients, two years later, they're fully disclosing and having full on personal conversations with me about the things that they want to, you know, work on, but it wasn't overnight and it didn't happen. You know, in some of our settings, we really look to have those, those um, rewarding relational interactions that sometimes us as teachers or won't get in, in the moment that we have with that student. And so um, I was sharing with you earlier that, you know, sometimes 
it's one thing that a teacher has said, or, you know, that sticks with you. Like in my experience was completely pivoted what I ended up doing because of this one. And I don't even remember her name. Mm. She'll never know poor thing, Mm -hmm. but she changed my life. Right. And so this positive, persistent, protected um, doses of relationship are, are the P's. And so, and we, and we need to be patient and we need to realize that these um, narratives and relational templates that are created are, are much, are created much before our interaction and how do we end up um, really being persistent on, on helping shape that to be different for the people that we're working with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It reminds me of Maya Angelo. you know, people won't remember how, what you said, but they remember how you made them feel. And mm-hmm. so much of what you described with those P's is not a cognitive process. It's mm-hmm. it's more those primitive ways of how we interact and feel safe with each other. And that leads me to one of the things you shared with our group of mental health consultants that we all kind of were just mind blown about was the intimacy barrier. And as much as I had learned about NMT, I, I hadn't quite heard it described in that way. And so I think it would be really cool for our listeners to hear more about also respecting people's individual differences uh, with that intimacy barrier. So would one of you like to describe that for us? Uh, I can start and then Angela, I think, can can build on it because she has a real deep knowledge of the um, intimacy barrier. I think we all have a relational template and and um, depending on what that relational template was, we're going to experience relationship as either rewarding or threatening. And so that when we're promoting relationship, both in therapy and in educational settings, a lot of times we're we're, we're encouraging teachers, what are you doing to build relationship? What are you doing to build relationship? Are you asking like all these super personal questions on the first day of school? Are you looking your students in the eye and getting really intensely close with them so they feel seen and heard? And all those things are great when the young person is feeling safe enough and vulnerable that the vulnerability feels rewarding. But if you you have a a real sensitized um, relational barrier, which is that we all have an intimacy barrier. And the question is, what level of intimacy is going to activate that threat threat response system? So, for example, if I'm just... I'm hanging out with someone who I am in relationship with, feel comfortable, feel safe. My partner, we've been together for a really long time. And he walks up next to me and puts his arm around me. I'm going to feel good. That's going to feel good to me because we have that relational safety. If someone who I don't have that relationship with just walked up and put their arm around me, it's going to activate my threat response system. I'm going to be like, whoa, that's a little bit over the line. That doesn't feel right. Um, And many or most people would have a similar response as me. But if I have this history of um, where where people I was in relationship with, the people who were supposed to take care of me, my, my primary caregiver, my grandmother, my mother, my father... Um, or maybe I was sexually abused, then I'm going to have this really sensitized stress response system. And even casual or or small interactions are going to feel like a threat. And so we have to be, that's where parallel can be really helpful. And 
the the thing that happens a lot in schools or in therapy is the client or the student uh, opens up, discloses something to you. You have this moment. It's like you connected. You felt really like, oh, now they trust me. We've made it past that really hard part. They just shared all this stuff. And the next day you see that same young person and you assume, oh, now we're good. We've, we've reached that point and you cross their intimacy barrier. They didn't invite you across at that time and they can activate that stress response or they can even feel very vulnerable having disclosed in a way that they, they're now in retrospect, like, oh, shoot, now I've, I've crossed the line and they're going to hurt me. Um, so really recognizing to be attentive and attuned to where's that line for each person each young person I'm interacting with, am I creating environments that allow the young person to set the vulnerability and intimacy of the relationship? Am I respecting that line for them? Am I waiting for them to invite me across? Mm-hmm. And I think one thing I'd like to add to this is that when we when we add uh, race into the equation, um, that the intimacy barrier is going to shift too. So I, I may, as a, if, if my experience has been that, uh, I've re- experienced a lot of microaggressions. I've been in systems that haven't been safe for me when I have been vulnerable, that the system has come back and, and, and caused harm to me so that if I'm a white teacher or a white therapist working with a client who is from, uh, you know, is Black or from a historically marginalized community, that I'm going to have to be even more attentive and attuned to where that intimacy barrier is because I can cause great harm in that relationship. Yes, the power differential is even more pronounced and their experience could be very much used to to white people, you know, crossing that line and take, you know, mm-hmm. being more invasive. And so I appreciate that reminder of of being more sensitive to who we are in relationship to these children. Um, so, so thank you for, for explaining that. Anything you want to add to that, Angela? Yes. I, I think that what Susan said was great, but I'm also thinking about proxemics and um, yeah. the importance of proximity and space. And I think about, again, the way that our classrooms are set up and the way that, um, that we, those of us that have had really healthy relational templates or, you know, we, we can be close to people, you know, typically it's about one and a half feet, right. Of, of space that feels okay. But what we're learning is that trauma and those that have had relational, you know, negative experiences, that's double. So now mm-hmm. you're three feet away. Right. And so I think about how many times that we're in lines and we're mm-hmm. in circles and we're really close to others. And, and we kind of ask students and, you know, to, to behave and and that we're not really considering what that experience might feel like for the youth that we're working with. And so um, oftentimes we're in groups and we're doing, we just assume a lot in educational systems, I think that relationships are safe and helpful. And, and, um, and I think we just thinking of proxemics and the proximity of space. And I really just wanted to um, reiterate it's the intimacy barriers is, is really them controlling that piece and, and inviting you in. And I think when, um, Dr. Bruce Perry had said something about most of us in this kind of profession have pretty decent relational history. And, and, and so we, I find myself doing this often is I will cross into someone else's intimacy barrier because it's comfortable for me, but not necessarily comfortable for them. So I, as I explained to some of the educators, I'm like, 
I'm the type of person that's just like, so what, how old are you? And where, you know, and asking mm-hmm. all these personal questions because I live in the deep, right. And as a therapist, but that can be extremely off-putting, you know, to some people in an initial conversation. Um, and so I have to be really aware of what are those signals. And, and sometimes we do mess up, you know, and, and that's mm-hmm. okay. We're not going to know right off the bat where, where someone might be comfortable, but that's where we self-reflect and say, mm, did that feel positive? I, I, mm-hmm. it seems like they felt maybe uncomfortable. So I need to back up and I need to allow them to have more control of, of that relationship. And, um, so yeah, lots of, lots of conversation and thought as far as proximity and spaces and, and how, how people, staff and students are getting space that feels comfortable to them. Um, I, I think you brought up this really nuanced dilemma of teachers that I think is so important, right? Because we know that group work is better. We, you know, that that kids learn better when they're in relationship with each other and feel safe. We know that groups are great. We, we need to transition from the hallway to outside. So lines are part of it. We don't want kids sitting in that corner desk excluded, but this, but that young person might be choosing that as a way to protect themselves. And so how are we having these nuanced conversations that aren't like, oh, well, we're going to have everyone in rows or we're going to have everyone in groups or we're going to, we're never going to put a student by themselves at a desk or we sometimes are. And, and I think that that's part of the complexity of providing um, education systems that are really respectful of of what young people need because it isn't a like do it this way or do it that way. It's mm-hmm. this more attentive and attuned, nuanced experience of being able to create the environment where the young person is feeling safe enough and getting the doses that they need. Right. And I think being fluid, right? Like it's not rigid. It could be from, you know, someone in my workshop said, well, it depends upon the day. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. absolutely. It depends upon the day. It depends upon who's there. All of these different factors, but oftentimes we're reluctant to give fluidity, right? In our Mm -hmm. classrooms because it feels chaotic. However, forcing somebody within, you know, that's crossing their intimacy barriers, also doing you a disservice because they're not able to be present and safe and attuned to the information that you're trying to teach them. So yeah, it's, I I wish it could be more fluid. I wish that kids were allowed to come in, step out, and that that was the norm, right? Within the Mm -hmm. classroom, um, that they could meet their needs, you know, as they needed. And we didn't feel that it was crossing into this chaotic, unpredictable environment. So I know it's not easy to, to define, but I think that those are the things that we're trying to, to figure out. Yes. And, and, you know, listening to both of you describe that one of my takeaways is it's not a one size fits all approach. Mm -hmm. And it's very state dependent, which Mm -hmm. Bruce Perry also talks about what state Mm -hmm. are we in, in our brains and in our stress response system. And our baselines can be very different depending on the day, depending on the hour, depending on the presence and the proximity. And so it it can feel overwhelming, but, but the knowledge of, of understanding some of those complexities and nuances can also be really powerful Mm -hmm. um, because it gives us more information to read the energy and read each individual child and, and look for their cues, especially when we can be present, um, which also goes back to that important piece. So 
So and Jenna, I would just like, I think that it's, it's pushing us to explore what's underneath the behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Like many times, oh, the kid, you know, he fleed from the classroom and we're focusing on, you shouldn't flee, right? Or you shouldn't, but well, why, why, you know, and I think we need mm-hmm. to be more curious and we need to figure out what's underneath some of those reactions that feel very behavioral, that really can be a stress response, you know, that that child is having that can inform how we approach that situation differently. Yes. And that I would say is, is a much more trauma informed approach when we are trying Mm -hmm. to understand the behavior and what it's communicating. Mm -hmm. So, so thank you both for shedding more light on that really important concept and, Gosh, the time is flying by. So I want, I know we've talked so much about NMT principles. And if there's anything else you want to add to that before we shift a little bit, because I also want our listeners to have a chance to hear about some of the other amazing work in the organizations that each of you are affiliated with. So anything we need to say before we shift? There's so much to say. I think I, I think I think we can probably close it out just because I mean there's days and days of things to say about these concepts. Um, I feel I feel like we gave a taste and hopefully it sparks interest in learning more. Yes, absolutely. And maybe we can, you know, I know Child Trauma Academy has some really great articles and resources, and there's um, some different websites that you can learn more about different concepts that we're kind of briefly touching on today. Because, yeah, it it is very thorough. (laughs) We'll link all of that in our show notes. And that's one of the things I love about Child Trauma Academy and the NMT work is there's a lot of free resources available. Mm -hmm. There's also stuff that you can pay for, but, but just consume everything that you can, especially the free stuff, because there's some great information to, to keep learning and building on some of the stuff that we, we talked about today. So, so Angela, tell us a little bit more about the other things that you're doing and where your areas of of focus and passion are these days. Sure. Um, well, it's, it's always changing. It, It all, it all depends upon, you know, how I feel in the day. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I have a private practice here in Montana, and I've just been building in training and consultation with different organizations, whether that be education systems or um, restorative justice organizations, um, a little bit of uh, assessment work with um, court systems, helping people understand. Um, the, the What we didn't talk about is the neurosequential model of therapeutics assessment, which really mm-hmm. helps dive into the clinical problem solving and helping people understand why interventions might be um, necessary to be focusing on. A lot of times we, you know, we say, oh, cognitive behavioral therapy or whatnot. So there's a lot that goes into that. Um, So been doing some assessments to help educate and um, help people problem solve different cases, some clinical supervision and training and, you know, consultation with, um, Uh, whether that be in Montana or beyond. So that's kind of the things that I've been working on right now with some other little projects that we'll see what what occurs in the future. But um, just loving to do the work and continuing these conversations and enlightening those with the education I've received and trying to, to build upon that and build capacity. 
Very cool. We're always, we've always got way too many projects. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) What about you, Susan? And you mentioned the forest bathing and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to really know more about this. So maybe we can have you back too and and talk more about, about nature because that's such a powerful regulator, but, but tell us more about some of the things you're doing. Yeah. After um, 20 years in the system, either working directly for the district, I worked for the county, I would manage a, a Medi-Cal funded nonprofit. A year ago, I left the district and started Hope Reimagined, which is a educational mental health support services organization. Um, I, as you mentioned, I, I do forest bathing. I was certified in forest therapy and forest bathing um, during the middle of the pandemic. And now I'm training with the Forest Therapy Hub in Portugal, the organization that I originally trained with. I am now a trainer for them, which has been very exciting. Um, And I'm the clinical director of Destiny Arts Organization, which is uh, martial arts, hip hop, spoken word, serving, um, I think 4,000 kids in the city of Oakland and really working with their staff to integrate healing centered practices. And so part of, I I have my hands in a lot of things, but the unifying thing I think between all of them is that taking these core concepts of what is healing, what are therapeutic, healthy, uh, culturally affirming environments and, and ways to reimagine what it is that we're doing in order to both prevent and also heal from the systemic trauma, uh, transgenerational trauma, um, violence, racism, inequality, and income. These are all have been core foundationals. And how do we do this in ways that are joyful and playful? I think I was getting just really weighed down by the amount of crisis and trauma that I was holding on a day to day basis within those systems. And so now I have I individual school sites who are aligned in terms of this healing-centered approach have contracted me to provide uh, interns and, and or um, staff to provide mental health services that are grounded in this healing-centered approach. Uh, I'm leading forest therapy groups and training new forest bathing guides Um, And then working in the arts to really integrate mental health. Uh, I believe art is healing. And I was my my children came through Destiny Arts and I had watched what they were doing. And they have a youth performance company that was tackling issues such as gun violence, sexual assault, racism through dance and movement. And we we really recognize the need for taking some of these core concepts from Dr. Bruce Perry. Um, and integrating it right into the programming. So joyful nature, music, dance, art, social justice, all these sort of big ideas. But I think the unifying is like every community deserves healing opportunities and playful environments. And how are we creating communities that are uh, respectful of our physiology and respectful and culturally affirming ways? So. Mm -hmm. Yes, what a beautiful way to wrap up this this interview hearing more of how you're you're taking this important foundational learning about Bruce Perry's work and others and then applying that in such meaningful ways and Angela hearing you your passion about doing that for for whether that's in direct service or also helping in workforce development and supervision with others and then Susan hearing you talk about again it's that hierarchy of how do, do we regulate and feel safe? Well, we need movement. We need nature. And so 
I'm serious. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm going to invite you back to talk more about, about especially the nature piece because yeah, it's so powerful. So, um, so to, to end us off, what you've already kind of touched on is what do each of you envision for the future for children, families, communities? I know that's a big question, but. I mean, I think it, I'll go because it's aligned with what I just said. I, I really do have a vision and a mission to create environments that are healing and joyful and um, and playful and that I, I am. I can't believe I get to do what I do now that I get to be around young people dancing and spoken word and I get to spend so much time connecting with nature. I, I, I believe in humanity. Um from the beginning of time, people have known that that's what's healing. And now I feel like we're coming back to recognizing what about those experiences that First Nations and First People, Indigenous people all over the world knew inherently were healing. And now we're connecting the science. Mm-hmm. And so I've, it seems to be an exciting time. Um, it's also a very difficult time, but I, I'm trying to stay grounded in the hopefulness and and been listening to folks that have been able to contextualize uh, reconciliation around, that we are in a time of reckoning that is both disorient. Like Dr. Perry says, anything new is automatically activates the stress response system. So I feel like our systems are both like trying to contract and also growing at the same time. Um, and I'm hopeful that we are going to be able to connect the wisdom of ancient practices with the science of modern physiology. I love that. Thank you, Susan. What about you, Angela? Um, I think that for me right now, my mission is to, um, my mission of, of what I'd like to see is increasing capacity. So is that education? Is that building more opportunity for relational webs? Is that um, connecting caregivers to the to the underneath of the why and, and mm-hmm. being able to uh, provide more informative assessments that um, that help us understand how we really have to that how we need to shift versus expecting um expecting others to always shift. And, and so I guess that's kind of an overarching theme that I'm just, I, I really feel like we need to increase capacity of um, efficacy and feeling um, more knowledgeable about how to approach the situations that are causing many of us stress. And I, I want to be a part of innovative system change. I mean, I think that I think we can do better and, and I want to be a part of the conversations that, help us grow and become better and more suited for the world that we are all living in now. Yes. Such beautiful, helpful messages. And I couldn't think of a better way to wrap up, even though I know we could keep going and going. And thank you for also reinforcing why I wanted both of you here in one of my earliest interviews, because I knew we would have a a beautiful, rich conversation, even though there's heaviness to trauma, there always is. There's also so much hope and joy to, to take away and to keep infusing into the work and parenting and caregiving and teaching that we're, that we're doing. So thank you both so much. I can't wait for our paths to cross again and to have you back. So thank you. Thank you so much. Take good care. Bye guys. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. 
please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. And join the Attachment Theory in Action podcast Facebook group. For additional resources and training opportunities, visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of attachment theory. Thank you.